0: Section 36 of The Fable of the Bees by Bernard Mandeville. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Horatio, I do not think myself a match for you in argument, but I have a great mind to be your gentleman's advocate against all your infallibility. I have never liked a cause better in my life. Come, I undertake to defend him and all the suppositions you can make that are reasonable and consistent with what you have said before, Cleomenes, very well, let us suppose what may happen to the most inoffensive, the most prudent and best-bred man, that our fine gentleman differs in opinion before company with another, who is his equal in birth and quality, but not so much master over his outward behavior, and less guarded in his conduct. Let this adversary, mal apropos, grow warm and seem to be wanting in the respect that is due to the other, and reflect on his honor in ambiguous terms, what is your client to do?" Horatio, immediately to ask for an explanation. Cleomenes, which, if the hot man disregards with scorn, or flatly refuses to give, satisfaction must be demanded, and tilt they must. Horatio, you are too hasty. It happened before company. In such cases, friends or any gentleman present should interpose and take care that if threatening words ensue, they are, by the civil authority, both put under arrest, and before they came to uncourteous language They ought to have been parted by friendly force, if it were possible. After that, overtures may be made of reconciliation with the nicest regard to the point of honour. Cleomenes, I do not ask for directions to prevent a quarrel. What you say may be done, or it may not be done. The good offices of friends may succeed, and they may not succeed. I am to make what suppositions I think fit within the verge of possibility, so they are reasonable and consistent with the character I have drawn. Can we not suppose these two persons in such a situation that you yourself would advise your friend to send his adversary a challenge? Horatio, without a doubt such a thing may happen. Cleomenes, that is enough. After that a duel must ensue, in which, without determining anything, the fine gentleman, we will say, behaves himself with the utmost gallantry. Horatio, to have suspected or supposed otherwise would have been unreasonable, Cleomenes, you see, therefore, how fair I am. But what is it, pray, that so suddenly disposes a courteous, sweet tempered man, for so small an evil, to seek a remedy of that extreme violence? But above all, what is it that buoys up and supports him against the fear of death? For there lies the greatest difficulty. Horatio, his natural courage and intrepidity, built on the innocence of his life and the rectitude of his manners. Cleomenes, but what makes so just and prudent a man that has the good of society so much at heart, act knowingly against the laws of his country? Horatio, the strict obedience he pays to the laws of honour which are superior to all others. Cleomenes, if men of honour would act confidently, they ought all to be Roman Catholics. Horatio, why, pray? Cleomenes, because they prefer oral tradition to all written laws, for nobody can tell when, in what kings or emperors reign, in what country, or by what authority, these laws of honor were first enacted. It is very strange they should be of such force. Horatio, they are wrote and engraved in every one's breast that is a man of honor. There is no denying of it. You are conscious of it yourself. Everybody feels it within. Cleomenes, let them be wrote or engraved wherever you please. They are directly opposite to and clashing with the laws of God. And if the gentleman I described was as sincere in his religion as he appeared to be, he must have been of an opinion contrary to yours. For Christians of all persuasions are unanimous in allowing the divine laws to be far above all other, and that all other considerations ought to give way to them. How and under what pretense can a Christian who is a man of sense Submit or agree to laws that prescribe revenge and countenance murder, both of which are so expressly forbid in the precepts of his religion. Horatio, I am no casuist, but you know that what I say is true, and that among persons of honor a man would be laughed at that should make such a scruple, not but that I think killing a man to be a great sin, where it can be helped, and that all prudent men ought to avoid the occasion as much as it is in their power." He is highly blamable who is the first aggressor, and gives the affront, and whoever enters upon it out of levity, or seeks a quarrel out of wantonness, ought to be hanged. Nobody would choose it who is not a fool, and yet, when it is forced upon one, all the wisdom in the world cannot teach him how to avoid it. It has been my case, you know. I shall never forget the reluctancy I had against it, but necessity has no law. Cleomenes I saw you that very morning, and you seemed to be sedate and void of passion. You could have no concern. Horatio, it is silly to show any at such times, but I know best what I felt. The struggle I had within was unspeakable. It was a terrible thing. I would then have given a considerable part of my estate that the thing which forced me into it had not happened, and yet, upon less provocation, I would act the same part again to Cleomenes, do you remember what your concern was chiefly about? Horatio, how can you ask? It is an affair of the highest importance that can occur in life. I was no boy. It was after we came from Italy. I was in my nine-and-twentieth year, had very good acquaintance, and was not ill-received. A man of that age, in health and vigor, who has seven thousand a year, and the prospect of being a peer of England, has no reason to quarrel with the world or wish himself out of it. It is a very great hazard a man runs in a duel. Besides the remorse and uneasiness one must feel as long as he lives if he has the misfortune of killing his adversary. It is impossible to reflect on all these things and at the same time resolve to run those hazards, though there are other conditions of still greater moment, without being under a prodigious concern. Cleomenes, you say nothing about the sin. Horatio, the thoughts of that without doubt are a great addition, but the other things are so weighty of themselves that a man's condition at such a time is very perplexed without further reflection. Cleomenes, you have now a very fine opportunity, Horatio, of looking into your heart and with a little of my assistance examining yourself. If you can condescend to this, I promise you that you shall make great discoveries and be convinced of truths you are now unwilling to believe. A lover of justice and probity as you are, Ought not to be fond of a road of thinking where he is always forced to skulk and never dares to meet with light or reason? Will you suffer me to ask you some questions, and will you answer them directly and in good humor? Horatio, I will, without reserve. Cleomenes, do you remember the storm upon the coast of Genoa? Horatio, going to Naples? Very well. It makes me cold to think of it. Cleomenes, was you afraid?" Horatio, never more in my life. I hate that fickle element. I cannot endure the sea. Cleomenes, what was you afraid of? Horatio, that is a pretty question. Do you think a young fellow of six and twenty as I was then, and in my circumstances, had a great mind to be drowned? The captain himself said we were in danger. Cleomenes, but neither he nor anybody else discovered half so much fear and anxiety as you did. Horatio, there was nobody there, yourself excepted, that had half a quarter so much to lose as I had. Besides, they are used to the sea, storms are familiar to them. I had never been at sea before, but that fine afternoon we crossed from Dover to Calais. Cleomenes, want of knowledge or experience may make men apprehend danger where there is none, but real dangers. When they are known to be such, try the natural courage of all men— whether they have been used to them or not. Sailors are as unwilling to lose their lives as other people. Horatio. I am not ashamed to own that I am a great coward at sea. Give me terra firma, and then stroke. Cleomenes. Six or seven months after you fought that duel, I remember you had the smallpox. You was then very much afraid of dying. Horatio. Not without a cause. Cleomenes. I heard your physicians say that the violent apprehension you was under hindered your sleep, increased your fever, and was as mischievous to you as the distemper itself. Horatio, that was a terrible time. I am glad it is over. I had a sister died of it. Before I had it, I was in perpetual dread of it, and many times to hear it named only has made me uneasy. Cleomenes, natural courage is a general armor against the fear of death. Whatever shape that appears in. fractus illabatur erbis. It supports a man in tempestuous seas, and in a burning fever, whilst he is in his senses, as well as in a siege before a town, or in a duel with seconds. Horatio, what? You are going to show me that I have no courage? Cleomenes, far from it. It would be ridiculous to doubt a man's bravery that has shown it in such an extraordinary manner as you have done more than once. What I question is the epithet you joined to it at first, the word natural, for there is a great difference between that and artificial courage. Horatio, that is a chicane I will not enter into, but I am not of your opinion as to what you said before. A gentleman is not required to show his bravery, but where his honor is concerned. And if he dares to fight for his king, his friend, his mistress, and everything where his reputation is engaged, you shall think of him what you please for the rest." Besides, that in sickness and other dangers, as well as afflictions, where the hand of God is plainly to be seen, courage and intrepidity are impious as well as impertinent. Undauntedness and chastisements is a kind of rebellion. It is waging war with heaven, which none but atheists and free thinkers would be guilty of. It is only they that can glory in impenitence and talk of dying hard. All others that have any sense of religion desire to repent before they go out of the world. The best of us do not always live, as we could wish to die. Cleomenes. I am very glad to hear you are so religious, but do you not perceive yet how inconsistent you are with yourself? How can a man sincerely wish to repent that willfully plunges himself into a mortal sin and an action where he runs a greater and more immediate hazard of his life than he could have done in almost any other without force or necessity? Horatio. I have over and over owned to you that dueling is a sin, and, unless a man is forced to it by necessity, I believe a mortal one. But this was not my case, and therefore I hope God will forgive me. Let them look into it, that make a sport of it. But when a man comes to an action with the utmost reluctancy, and what he does is not possibly to be avoided, I think he then may be justly said to be forced to it, and to act from necessity." You may blame the rigorous laws of honor and the tyranny of custom, but a man that will live in the world must and is bound to obey them. Would you not do it yourself? Cleomenes, do not ask me what I would do. The question is what everybody ought to do. Can a man believe the Bible and at the same time apprehend a tyrant more crafty or malicious, more unrelenting or inhuman than the devil, or a mischief worse than hell? and pains either more exquisite or more durable than torments unspeakable and yet everlasting? You do not answer. What evil is it? Think of it, and tell me what dismal thing it is you apprehend, should you neglect these laws and despise that tyrant. What calamity would befall you? Let me know the worst that can be feared. Horatio, would you be posted for a coward? Cleomenes, for what? for not daring to violate all human and divine laws? Horatio, strictly speaking, you are in the right, it is unanswerable. But who will consider things in that light? Cleomenes, all good Christians. Horatio, where are they then? For all mankind in general would despise and laugh at a man who should move those scruples. I have heard and seen clergymen themselves in company show their contempt of poltroons, whatever they might talk or recommend in the pulpit, entirely to quit the world, and at once to renounce. The conversation of all persons that are valuable in it is a terrible thing to resolve upon. Would you become a town and table talk? Could you submit to be the jest and scorn of public houses, stagecoaches, and marketplaces? Is not this the certain fate of a man who should refuse to fight or bear an affront without resentment? Be just, Cleomenes. Is it to be avoided? Must he not be made a common laughing-stock, be pointed at in the streets, and serve for diversion to the very children, to link-boys and hackney-coachmen? Is it a thought to be born with patience? Cleomenes, how come you now to have such an anxious regard for what may be the opinion of the vulgar, whom at other times you so heartily despise. Horatio, all this is reasoning, and you know the thing will not bear it. How can you be so cruel? Cleomenes, how can you be so backward in discovering and owning the passion that is so conspicuously the occasion of all this, the palpable and only cause of the uneasiness we feel at the thoughts of being despised? Horatio, I am not sensible of any, and I declare to you that I feel nothing that moves me to speak as I do, but the sense and principle of honor within me. Cleomenes, do you think that the lowest of the mob and the scum of the people are possessed of any part of this principle? Horatio, no, indeed. Cleomenes, or that among the highest quality, infants can be affected with it before they are two years old? Horatio, ridiculous. Cleomenes, if neither of these are affected with it, then honor should be either adventitious and acquired by culture, or, if contained in the blood of those that are nobly born, imperceptible until the years of discretion. And neither of them can be said of the principle, the palpable cause I speak of. For we plainly see on the one hand that scorn and ridicule are intolerable to the poorest wretches, and that there is no beggar so mean or miserable that contempt will never offend him. On the other, that human creatures are so early influenced by the sense of shame, that children, by being laughed at and made a jest of, may be set a-crying before they can well speak or go. Whatever, therefore, this mighty principle is, it is born with us, and belongs to our nature. Are you unacquainted with the proper, genuine, homely name of it? Horatio, I know you call it pride. I will not dispute with you about principles and origins of things. But that high value which men of honor set upon themselves as such, and which is no more than what is due to the dignity of our nature, when well cultivated, is the foundation of their character, and a support to them in all difficulties, that is of great use to the society. The desire, likewise, of being thought well of, and the love of praise and even glory are commendable qualities that are beneficial to the public. The truth of this is manifest in the reverse all shameless people that are below infamy, and matter not what is said or thought of them. These we see nobody can trust, they stick at nothing, and if they can but avoid death, pain, and penal laws, are always ready to execute all manner of mischief. Their selfishness or any brutal appetite shall prompt them to, without regard to the opinion of others. Such are justly called men of no principles, because they have nothing of any strength within, They can either spur them on to brave and virtuous actions, or restrain them from villainy and baseness. Cleomenes, the first part of your assertion is very true. When that high value, that desire, and that love are kept within the bounds of reason. But, in the second, there is a mistake. Those whom we call shameless are not more destitute of pride than their betters. Remember what I have said of education, and the power of it. You may add inclinations, knowledge, and circumstances— For, as men differ in all these, so they are differently influenced and wrought upon by all the passions. There is nothing that some men may not be taught to be ashamed of. The same passion that makes the well-bred man and prudent officer value and secretly admire themselves for the honor and fidelity they display may make the rake and scoundrel brag of their vices and boast of their impudence. Horatio, I cannot comprehend how a man of honor and one that has none should both act from the same principle. Cleomenes, This is not more strange than that self-love may make a man destroy himself, yet nothing is more true, and it is as certain that some men indulge their pride in being shameless. To understand human nature requires study and application, as well as penetration and sagacity. All passions and instincts in general were given to all animals for some wise end tending to the preservation and happiness of themselves or their species. It is our duty to hinder them from being detrimental or offensive to any part of the society, but why should we be ashamed of having them? The instinct of high value, which every individual has for himself, is a very useful passion, but a passion it is, and though I could demonstrate that we should be miserable creatures without it, yet, when it is excessive, it often is the cause of endless mischiefs. Horatio, but in well-bred people it is never excessive. Cleomenes, you mean the excess of it never appears outwardly, but we ought never to judge of its height or strength from what we can discover of the passion itself, but from the effects it produces. It often is most superlative where it is most concealed, and nothing increases and influences it more than what is called a refined education and a continual commerce with the beau monde. The only thing that can subdue, or any ways curb it, is a strict adherence to the Christian religion. Horatio, why do you so much insist upon it, that this principle, this value men set upon themselves, is a passion, and why will you choose to call it pride rather than honor? Cleomenes, for very good reasons, fixing this principle in human nature, in the first place, takes away all ambiguity. Who is a man of honor and who is not? is often a disputable point among those that are allowed to be such, the several degrees of strictness in complying with the rules of it make great difference in the principle itself. But a passion that is born with us is unalterable and part of our frame, whether it exerts itself or not. The essence of it is the same, which way soever it is taught to turn. Honor is the undoubted offspring of pride, but the same cause produces not always the same effect. All the vulgar, children, savages, and many others that are not affected with any sense of honor have all of them pride, as is evident from the symptoms. Secondly, it helps us to explain the phenomena that occur in quarrels and affronts, and the behavior of men of honor on these occasions, which cannot be accounted for any other way. But what moves me to it most of all is the prodigious force and exorbitant power of this principle of self-esteem where it has been long gratified and encouraged. You remember the concern you was under when you had that duel upon your hands and the great reluctancy you felt in doing what you did. You knew it to be a crime and, at the same time, had a strong aversion to it. What secret power was it that subdued your will and gained the victory over that reluctancy you felt against it? You call it honor and the too strict, though unavoidable, adherence to the rules of it. But men never commit violence upon themselves, but in struggling with the passions that are innate and natural to them. Honor is acquired, and the rules of it are taught. Nothing adventitious, that some are possessed and others destitute of, could raise such intestine wars and dire commotions within us. And therefore, what is the cause that can thus divide us against ourselves, and, as it were, rend human nature in twain, must be part of us? And, to speak without disguise, the struggle in your breast was between the fear of shame and the fear of death. Had this latter not been so considerable, your struggle would have been less. Still, the first conquered, because it was strongest. But if your fear of shame had been inferior to that of death, you would have reasoned otherwise, and found out some means or other to have avoided fighting. Horatio, this is a strange anatomy of human nature. Cleomenes, yet, for want of making use of it, the subject we are upon is not rightly understood by many, and men have discoursed very inconsistently on dueling. A divine who wrote a dialogue to explode that practice said that those who were guilty of it had mistaken notions of and went by false rules of honor, for which my friend justly ridiculed him, saying, You may as well deny that it is the fashion what you see everybody wear, as to say that demanding and giving satisfaction is against the laws of true honor. Had that man not understood human nature, he could not have committed such a blunder. But when once he took it for granted that honor is a just and good principle, without inquiring into the cause of it among the passions, it is impossible he should have accounted for dueling in a Christian pretending to act from such a principle. And therefore, in another place, with the same justice, he said, that a man who had accepted a challenge was not qualified to make his will, because he was not compos mentis. He might, with greater show of reason, have said that he was bewitched. Horatio, why so? Cleomenes, because people out of their wits, as they think at random, so commonly they act and talk incoherently. But when a man of known sobriety, and who shows no manner of discomposure, discourses and behaves himself in everything, as he is used to do, and, moreover, reasons on points of great nicety with the utmost accuracy, it is impossible we should take him to be either a fool or a madman, and when such a person, in an affair of the highest importance, acts so diametrically against his interest that a child can see it, and with deliberation pursues his own destruction, those who believe that there are malignant spirits of that power would rather imagine that he was led away by some enchantment, and overruled by the enemy of mankind, then they would fancy a palpable absurdity. But even the supposition of that is not sufficient to solve the difficulty, without the help of that strange anatomy. For what spell of witchcraft is there by the delusion of which a man of understanding shall, keeping his senses, mistake an imaginary duty for an unavoidable necessity to break all real obligations? but let us waive all ties of religion as well as human laws, and the person we speak of to be a professed epicure that has no thoughts of futurity. What violent power of darkness is it that can force and compel a peaceable quiet man, neither inured to hardship nor valiant by nature, to quit his beloved ease and security, and seemingly by choice go fight in cold blood for his life, with this comfortable reflection, that nothing forfeits it so certainly as the entire defeat of his enemy. Horatio, as to the law and the punishment, persons of quality have little to fear of that. Cleomenes, you cannot say that in France, nor the seven provinces, but men of honor that are of much lower ranks decline dueling no more than those of the highest quality." How many examples have we, even here, of gallant men that have suffered for it either by exile or the hangman? A man of honor must fear nothing. Do but consider every obstacle which this principle of self-esteem has conquered at one time or other, and then tell me whether it must not be something more than magic, by the fascination of which a man of taste and judgment, in health and vigor, as well as the flower of his age, can be tempted and actually drawn from the embraces of a wife he loves and the endearments of hopeful children, from polite conversation and the charms of friendship, from the fairest possessions and the happy enjoyment of all worldly pleasures, to an unwarrantable combat of which the victor must be exposed either to an ignominious death or perpetual banishment. Horatio. When things are set in this light, I confess it is very unaccountable. But will your system explain this? Can you make it clear yourself? Cleomenes, immediately, as the sun, if you will but observe two things that must necessarily follow and are manifest from what I have demonstrated already. The first is that the fear of shame, in general, is a matter of caprice that varies with modes and customs and may be fixed on different objects according to the different lessons we have received, and the precepts we are imbued with, and that this is the reason why this fear of shame, as it is either well or ill-placed, sometimes produces very good effects, and at others is the cause of the most enormous crimes. Secondly, that, though shame is a real passion, the evil to be feared from it is altogether imaginary, and has no existence but in our own reflection on the opinions of others. Horatio, But there are real and substantial mischiefs which a man may draw upon himself by misbehaving in point of honor. It may ruin his fortune, and all hopes of preferment. An officer may be broken for putting up an affront. Nobody will serve with a coward, and who will employ him? Cleomenes, what you urge is altogether out of the question. At least it was in your own case. You had nothing to dread or apprehend but the bare opinion of men. Besides, when the fear of shame is superior to that of death, Is likewise superior to and outweighs all other considerations, as has been sufficiently proved. But when the fear of shame is not violent enough to curb the fear of death, nothing else can, and whenever the fear of death is stronger than that of shame, there is no consideration what will make a man fight in cold blood, or comply with any of the laws of honor where life is at stake. Therefore, Whoever acts from the fear of shame as a motive, in sending and accepting of challenges, must be sensible, on the one hand, that the mischiefs he apprehends, should he disobey the tyrant, can only be the offspring of his own thoughts, and, on the other, that if he could be persuaded anywise to lessen the great esteem and high value he sets upon himself, this dread of shame would likewise palpably diminish, from all which it is most evident that the grand cause of this distraction, The powerful enchanter we are seeking after is pride, excess of pride, that highest pitch of self-esteem, to which some men may be wound up by an artful education, and the perpetual flatteries bestowed upon our species, and the excellencies of our nature. This is the sorcerer that is able to divert all other passions from their natural objects, and make a rational creature ashamed of what is most agreeable to his inclination, as well as his duty. Both which the duellist owns that he has knowingly acted against. Horatio, what a wonderful machine! What an heterogeneous compound is man! You have almost conquered me. Cleomenes, I aim at no victory. All I wish for is to do you service in undeceiving you. Horatio, what is the reason that, in the same person, the fear of death should be so glaringly conspicuous in sickness or a storm, and so entirely well hid in a duel? and all military engagements, pray, solve that too. Cleomenes, I will as well as I can. On all emergencies, where reputation is thought to be concerned, the fear of shame is effectually roused in men of honor, and immediately their pride rushes in to their assistance, and summons all their strength to fortify and support them in concealing the fear of death, by which extraordinary efforts, the latter, that is the fear of death, is altogether stifled, or, at least, kept out of sight, and remains undiscovered. But in all other perils in which they do not think their honor engaged, their pride lies dormant, and thus the fear of death, being checked by nothing, appears without disguise. That this is the true reason is manifest from the different behavior that is observed in men of honor, according as they are either pretenders to Christianity, or tainted with irreligion. For there are of both sorts, and you shall see Most commonly, at least, that your esprit for, and those who would be thought to disbelieve a future state, I speak of men of honor, show the greatest calmness and intrepidity in the same dangers, where the pretended believers among them appear to be the most ruffled and pusillanimous. Horatio, but why pretended believers? At that rate there are no Christians among the men of honor. Cleomenes, I do not see how they can be real believers. Horatio, why so? Cleomenes, for the same reason that a Roman Catholic cannot be a good subject, always to be depended upon, in a Protestant, or indeed any other country, but the dominions of his holiness. No sovereign can confide with safety in a man's allegiance who owns and pays homage to another superior power upon earth. I am sure you understand me. Horatio, too well. Cleomenes, you may yoke a knight with a prebendary and put them together into the same stall but honor and the Christian religion make no couple. N'ec in una sede morantur, any more than majesty and love. Look back on your own conduct, and you shall find that what you said of the hand of God was only a shift, an evasion you made to serve your then present purpose. On another occasion you had said yesterday yourself that providence superintends and governs everything without exception. You must therefore have known that the hand of God is as much to be seen in one common accident in life and in one misfortune as it is in another that is not more extraordinary. A severe fit of sickness may be less fatal than a slight skirmish between two hostile parties, and, among men of honor, there is often as much danger in a quarrel about nothing as there can be in the most violent storm. It is impossible, therefore, that a man of sense, who has a solid principle to go by, should. In one sort of danger, think it impiety not to show fear, and in another be ashamed to be thought to have any. Do but consider your own inconsistency with yourself. At one time, to justify your fear of death, when pride is absent, you became religious on a sudden, and your conscience then is so tenderly scrupulous that, to be undaunted under chastisements from the Almighty, seems no less to you than waging war with heaven. And, at another, when honor calls you dare not knowingly and willingly break the most positive command of God, but likewise to own that the greatest calamity which, in your opinion, can befall you, is that the world should believe, or but suspect of you, that you had any scruple about it. I defy the wit of man to carry the affront to the Divine Majesty higher, barely to deny his being is not half so daring as it is to do this after you have owned him to exist. No atheism, stroke. Horatio, hold, Cleomenes. I can no longer resist the force of truth, and I am resolved to be better acquainted with myself for the future. Let me become your pupil. Cleomenes, do not banter me, Horatio. I do not pretend to instruct a man of your knowledge. But if you will take my advice, search into yourself with care and boldness, at your leisure. Peruse the book I recommended. Horatio, I promise you I will, and shall be glad to accept of the handsome present I refused. Pray, send a servant with it tomorrow morning. Cleomenes, it is a trifle. You had better let one of yours go with me now. I shall drive home directly. Horatio, I understand your scruple. It shall be as you please. End of section 36